Hey, and welcome back to Dorm Room History. I'm your host, Eric Andreessen, and today is finally our eighth episode. I know it's been a long time, honestly, way too long for me, but in the meantime, I have started a new series, so no, it's not like I've been completely slacking off. Back to our show, though, we've covered a lot together through our first two series here on Dorm Room History. We've covered everything from ancient China, and more recently, well, I guess not so recently, we dove headfirst into a four-plus-hour series on the American Revolution. And yes, as I mentioned, I have a new series out called The History of China, and it's on all the same platforms, so be sure to check that out after this is all done. But when I was looking into a new topic for this show, I wanted something that could work as a standalone episode. Just one episode. I didn't want to commit to a series. So it had to be a subject that I could really sort of dissect and get into fully in just one episode, albeit even if it is a very, very long episode at that. But oh my, this was so much more complex than I thought. So it's taken me forever, as you can tell, and this will indeed be another series. I cannot fit this all into one episode. So I was thinking and thinking and thinking, and then it dawned on me. Through both series, I often made references back to old Rome. Now, obviously, Mike Duncan already did an in-depth look into Rome from start to finish, and obviously one episode couldn't do all the Roman wars or eras or figures justice, but then I remembered. I was doing a classic 3 a.m. YouTube binge, and I watched a video on the Praetorian Guard. They were the Imperial Roman bodyguard who, from a small group with very limited power, eventually would sort of house of cards themselves into, into a position of power that likened them to the emperor that they were supposed to protect. In an essence, they were like the Navy SEALs and the Secret Service all wrapped into one, then given a bunch of ancient world perks like better uniforms, better pay, and even had their own giant barracks. And just like that, after finally picking a subject and finally getting around to record an actual episode, here we are with our eighth episode of Dorm Room History, the rise and fall of the Praetorian Guard. If you think about important people throughout the long and ever-growing course of history, about a million names will come to mind. Leaders from the modern era, like Gorbachevs or Thatchers or Churchills or FDR, or even the old world, like Caesar and Napoleon, etc., you get the idea. Powerful and influential people have existed throughout all of time. But we know the fact to be true that people die. Duh. So that one person that's so influential can only directly affect the world around them for as long as they're actually alive. Now, empires or nation-states, though, usually last longer, but those are often very diffuse and very widespread. So what if we look in between the two? A single person and a state. Well, what about a group of people? Is there a group that influenced the world around it for an extended period of time? Today, groups like Al-Qaeda, and if you're a bit more off the deep end, the Illuminati, exist. The Black Hand, the Serbian nationalist group that had a member shoot Archduke Ferdinand, which then, as we know, kicked off World War I. 
But both those groups, Al-Qaeda and the Black Hand, they did one thing. Well, of course they did more, but they did that one big thing that changed the world. But what about a group that existed for hundreds of years and continually increased its grip over the world and the influence it held? Well, that's exactly what the Praetorian Guard did. They were a group that started off as a bodyguard unit, but would eventually kill the emperors they were sworn to protect and then auction off the position. But before we get there, we gotta go way back and start from the beginning. This story is going to start in 44 BC, just after the assassination of Julius Caesar. So sorry to all you Julius Caesar stands, but he is not going to be part of this story. But Caesar gone meant there was a huge, almost unfillable power vacuum in Rome. In Caesar's will, his grandnephew, a man named Octavian, inherited the title as his son, and with that, the name Caesar. But even though he named a son of his, the Roman Republic had just fallen. And from 44 BC to 31 BC, the Roman Empire, for all intents and purposes, was up for grabs. The contenders were Octavian, Marcus Junius Brutus, Gaius Cassius, and lastly, Caesar's longtime right-hand man, Mark Antony. Both Brutus and Cassius and Antony had their own armies, so Octavian raised his own. During this multifaceted civil war, Octavian decided to create a personal bodyguard unit for his own security on the battlefield, but also off of it, whether it was in the camps or back in a city. This, this group of bodyguards, was his Praetorian cohort. Though no, I'm not saying he invented it, because though the fact remains... Octavian was hardly the first person to create a Praetorian Guard. So wait, you're probably wondering, kicking back and saying, look, wait, why am I starting here then? But just wait. Give me a second. Because this will all make sense in a little bit. The idea of having a group of elite troops attached to a general or a consul or what have you was something that had existed for a long time already in Rome up until this point. In fact, the term, and pardon my Latin, Cohort's Praetorium, which really just means your Praetorian cohort, is first seen in a reference to Scipio Africanus, which was over 250 years before where I've started this story. Most Praetorian units before this were, according to Guy Bedarier, quote, amounted to soldiers who had been selected from the bravest. They were exempt from soldiers' normal duties and received one and a half times pay. But, and this is important, they were not distinguished from others in battle, end quote. Polybius, who wrote in the 2nd century BC, gives us another one of our earliest definitions of this seemingly mysterious group of soldiers. In short, the Praetorium was the name of the general's tent, or the consuls or whoever it be, and it was flanked by the tents of the most elite troops. So there is nothing really new or special here with what Octavian is doing, because for literal centuries, Personal units that protected the general or higher officer or consul for higher pay existed informally, and yes, guard their praetorium. So you can see where the name comes from. But during the civil war between Pompey and Caesar in 49 BC, Caesar himself remarks that one of Pompey's generals, Marcus Petrius, was supported by, quote, 
a Praetorian cohort of Catrati, end quote, which were, and again, pardon my butchering of that pronunciation, but those soldiers were light but very elite Spanish cavalry. Caesar himself seemingly habitually had his own body of German cavalry with him, though he never referred to them bluntly as the Praetorian Guard or a Praetorian unit of any sort. But the idea of what the Praetorian Guard under Octavian would do is clear, and it had been clear for a long time. But in this earlier time, the words Praetorian Guard were loose, and they could really mean anything from a group serving directly for a higher officer or a general, or just really crack elite troops. But the term was not new nonetheless, albeit one with potentially many meanings. And according to Guy Bedorier, quote, Octavian was only too aware that Caesar, being convinced that possession of a bodyguard unit was a sign of a man who lived constantly in fear of death, had spurned his friend's advice to go about with one, and paid the price himself when he was assassinated, end quote. Caesar himself relied, in his own words, on the goodwill of the people to protect him. Octavian, though, on the other hand, looked to use this goodwill of the people, yeah, as one factor of it, but it can't hurt to also use the literal protection of armed men. So nonetheless, between the years of 44 BC and 31 BC, Octavian and Mark Antony both created Praetorian cohorts of their own, though again, what that really means is really to each his own. Antony raised a Praetorian force, according to the ancient historians, of about 6,000 men. But he seemingly got to the 6,000-man number over a period of time. He didn't just raise 6,000 men at once, they sort of filtered in. And the famed Roman historian Appian claims that it was entirely comprised of centurions. So 6,000 centurions were his Praetorian guard? Well, look, let's be real. Mathematics-wise, this is literally impossible. You can't have that many centurions. And you get this a lot with ancient historians. And while we want to discredit it, and we want to laugh it off, these ancient historical accounts, regardless of how absurd they can be, are all we have. But Guy Bedorier offers the potential answer for this, is that Appian may have meant that all the members of Antony's Praetorian force were simply paid as much as a centurion, which would have fit with the theme of the previous forms of Praetorian guard units in the past. And yes, as I mentioned, Octavian had his own as well, but it's what happened after the Battle of Actium where this story really begins to get its feet. And the Battle of Actium was the decisive battle for Octavian. After the battle, Octavian was the last man standing and would look to be the first emperor of Rome. After this civil war, Rome is not the same. It never will be. And it will never even be called the same thing in our analysis of it in history. Around Caesar's time of rule, or whatever you want to call it, I mean dictator, savior of a broken republic, regardless, we all watch the fall of the Roman Republic. But by where we are now, in 31 BC, the Republic, in most historians' eyes, has been gone for roughly about 15 years. But what does that leave us with? Well, the Roman Empire. But there hasn't been an emperor yet. Look, if you want to call Caesar the first emperor of Rome, you can. And the fact remains, though, that you'd be technically wrong, because there had not been an imperator yet. And Octavian wins the civil war, as I mentioned. But you might not know him as Octavian, because you might know him through history by his new name, Augustus, otherwise known as the first Roman emperor. 
and he is, by the way, the perfect first emperor. He is aware of the fears of the people regarding an all-powerful ruler. He understands the scars of Caesar. He understands the fears of having armies in Rome and whatnot. And quick tangent, he was the first, but is often regarded as the best Roman emperor in Roman history. So after this war ends, Octavian, who by the way, we will now refer to in this story solely as Augustus, reorganizes the entire army. When all was said and done after the war, he was in charge of a whopping 60 legions. And yeah, give or take a few. He had his own army, but then all of the legions he absorbed from the now dead Antony. So here he is sitting with a half million man army but he claims to demobilize about 60% of this force. And this claim, though, is corroborated by Dio, the historian, when he states that by 5 AD, Augustus had 23 or 25 legions. But most importantly for this story, he had 10,000 Praetorians in 10 cohorts. Tacitus, however, and of course the Roman historians have to throw a monkey wrench into this, states that by that same year, there were only nine Praetorian cohorts. While there is this number discrepancy, he does indicate that there was some sort of mounted force with about four infantry to every one mounted Praetorian. Still, the numbers of the Praetorian are vague. But the big thing here is that they exist in peacetime. And that is another big moment for us in this story. Remember, a Praetorian cohort or guard or whatever you want to call it was just a force of personal units attached to a general or a consul during wartime. And yeah, was usually made of elite troops. But now it's peacetime and there's a new Rome. And the Praetorian are, well, now still left intact during peacetime. And yeah, I know, peacetime is an iffy term to say the least. Augustus had just won a brutal civil war after a crazy shakeup of power and conceptions of authority under Caesar. All of that had shaken Rome to its core. And yeah, a crazy shakeup doesn't really even do it justice. Was Julius Caesar the first person to challenge, let alone endanger the Republic? Of course not. And Dan Carlin's whole series called Death Throes of the Republic dives into the whole slow-moving downfall of the Republic and the characters from that story, whether it's Tiberius Gracchus, Sulla, and so on. But for Augustus, he has to balance the fact that not having a standing army and not having a bodyguard force would help mend any suspicions and issues the Roman citizens had after just going what they went through through the last 20 years. They had just gone through the Caesar whirlwind, and Augustus still had to establish his own legitimacy, but also with the fact that not having those things could delegitimize him in the blunt sense that it would leave him literally vulnerable to being killed or removed from power or what have you. So that is really why the Praetorian cohorts that existed prior to the Civil War and during the Civil War are now kept in peacetime, marking the true beginning of the Praetorian Guard that we would end up knowing and loving so much through this episode and the next. While this is the beginning of something that would end up being a big deal, not much is known about them because at this time, they really just weren't a big deal. But here is what we know. Every afternoon, the serving tribune of the cohort would receive the password from the emperor personally. The command of this cohort was assumed directly by the emperor and not by a Praetorian prefect of any sort. 
Augustus had to give himself off to the Roman people as being sort of this perfect emperor. He was trying to convince people that used to execute anybody who resembled a king and, well, wanted to say, hey, look, guys, be cool with me. Get with the program. I'm the good guy. But let's be real. How is it going to look knowing you have kept a sizable force of armed and elite soldiers in the area to defend you and do your bidding? Double-edged sword there. So he has to keep the Praetorians pretty spread out and low-key. Though as low-key as these soldiers were, let's not forget, they are soldiers. They could not do too much in the shadows, because even the knowledge of their existence provided Augustus with a feeling of legitimacy. And the two's relationship, emperor and Praetorian guard, was symbiotic. According to Guy de la Borier, quote, If the Praetorian guard had not existed, it would have been necessary for Augustus to invent it, or something very like it. Conversely, though, the guard had no identity, no purpose, and crucially, no pay. End quote. This relationship, while functioning now, seems to have resembled a loose military dictatorship, where the military and the absolute ruler both need each other to survive. However, the leader can't really do anything about it, or vice versa. Now, with them being sort of in, yet sort of out of the shadows, some of the Praetorians' early undertakings and whatnot just simply aren't known at all. Though one of their early events that are tied to answers some of the potential questions of not just their usefulness, but also their loyalty and where that lied. Because again, this is pretty much a military dictatorship. In 22 BC, an event known as the Marana Plot unfolded. And I will, let's, I'm going to be very blunt actually, not much again is known about this. But from what we do know is that it took place in 22 BC, and according to Cassius Dio again, and pardon me, I keep thinking of the second Black Sabbath singer every time I say his name, but nonetheless, a former Macedonian governor was on trial for starting an illegal war against a tribe in the region. And yes, we're on the same page. Rome getting uppity about illegal wars? Well, I guess the strong do what they can, and the weak will suffer what they must. Nonetheless, this governor's legal defense was headed by one Licinius Morena, and he claims that the war could not have been illegal. It was impossible, because it was Augustus himself who had told this governor in the first place to start it. Whoa. Now that's a bombshell, and that's an even bigger bombshell for the first emperor of Rome. But then, with no one anticipating this, Augustus himself comes to the court. And when Morena challenges him being there, Augustus remarks that, quote, I am here in the public interest, end quote. What kind of Game of Thrones awesome power move is that? Here is a man stating that he is the public interest. And look, yeah, this obviously rubs some people, including Morena, who, let's just say, weren't used to this whole new emperor thing the wrong way. And he immediately starts to plot against him. And for all we know, it was the Praetorian Guard themselves who stopped the conspiracy on Augustus' life. This incident opens the gates for a whole bunch of seemingly small, but actually really important things to burst on out. For one, Augustus had the kahunas to declare himself in the public interest, but then, with the new permanently established Praetorian Guard, they were doing his bidding. But things haven't even gotten weird yet. 
Though force was used, Augustus does not advertise this in this case, because he doesn't want to use fear as a tactic. While the Praetorian Guard may have put down this challenge on his life, he just threw it right under the bed. After the Battle of Actium, which, remember, was Augustus's decisive victory against Antony, very little, if not none, of his minted coinage after that battle has any military reference of any kind, even though, before the battle, those coins did. Which, again, is quite a multi-level chess move. Given he is now establishing a permanent elite armed guard, it's like the situation today with modern-day nuclear weapons. The United States and Russia and China will all use diplomacy, but under the table, each of them know that the other had the ability to decimate the other one or themselves. On one hand, Augustus is using force that has never been seen before, but on the contrary, he's not advertising it. He's keeping it very downplayed. Now, what Augustus decided to call himself was the Imperator. Now, this is where the word emperor comes from, but it really just literally means a victorious commander. And by the end of his reign, the armies of Augustus had conquered northern Hispania, modern-day Spain and Portugal. He had conquered through to the Alpine regions of Raetia and Nordicum, which is now modern-day Switzerland, Bavaria, Austria, and Slovenia, Illyricum and Pannonia, which is modern-day Albania, Croatia, Hungary, Serbia, etc., and had extended the borders of the African province to the east and the south. Judea was added to the province of Syria when Augustus deposed Herod Archelaus, successor to Klein King Herod the Great. Syria, like Egypt after Antony, was governed by a high prefect of the equestrian class rather than by a proconsul or legate of Augustus. And, by the way, you can bet that the elite Praetorian Guard were at all of these battles expanding the empire. However, sadly, and I know it sucks for this show at the very onset, but not many records and details about the Praetorian Guard exist during the later parts of Augustus' reign. They guarded the palace, they fought off in the frontiers, so we know of its establishment, but specific evidence? Well, it's very hit or miss here. So we aren't going to get into these conquests at all, really. Because if we do, we will just lose sight of the Praetorian Guard and what this story really entails. What we do know, though, is roughly how Augustus during this time set up the Guard. We know he was trying to not have his image be synonymous with overt military power. So Augustus, being the deep strategic thinker he was, does not just appoint himself leader of the Praetorians. No, instead, what does he institute? Well, he puts in two prefects to lead the Guard. Why? Well, no clear explanation exists because, well, why would it? That would help this podcast. I'm just kidding. All jokes aside, though, nothing really exists. But Guy de la Bordier speaks on the matter and says the following, quote, The use of two prefects might have been a function of the fact that the guard was physically dispersed at this date, since it clearly would have been impossible for one man to maintain an equal level of supervision. Legions were routinely split into vexillations, each made up from several cohorts while on campaign, and, by the way, as we know, something we know that Augustus was on a lot. Anyway, he continues, This did not entail the appointment of two or more legionary legates. However, instead, a senior officer such as the Prefectus Castrum, or the Prefect of the Camp, might be used to command part of the legion. Indeed, such men might command the whole legion during an interregnum of legionary legates. 
such as when a legate died in his post and his replacement had not yet arrived. And he continues by saying, The purpose of having two prefects may have also been to prevent any instability from an interregnum, should one of the prefects die in office. Moreover, the Praetorian Guard was far closer to home. Maintaining their trust and loyalty under the leadership of someone already known to the Praetorians was likely to be way more secure. End quote. And yeah, I know, that was quite the quote. But it paints the picture much better than I can because sometimes, well, let's be blunt, it's good to leave this kind of stuff up to the experts. So we'd have these two prefects, and thankfully, their names did indeed make it through all of history to us today. Though we still don't know the length of these appointments or some of the other details about this new post. But nonetheless, Cassius Dio wrote that the first of the two prefects was a man named Quintus Austria Scapula. Like most high-ranking officials at the time, he was of a high-ranking equestrian class from a well-to-do family, and he had shown immense loyalty and service to Augustus by supporting him and fighting for him during his Octavian years. Yeah, I know. The name situation is a bit confusing. But the second man was named Publius Salvius Aper and was appointed in 2 BC. And well, folks, that's all we know about him. But bear with me. The information is about to come. We know that while Augustus was trying not to look like he was in direct control of a powerful force, he still was. Look, while he picked prefects to separate himself from the overt use of military power, let's just be blunt. These prefects were his friends. They were his boys. They were those who were loyal to him and those that would do his bidding without question. So it's a win-win. The prefect, you know, gets an illustrious position. And all he has to do is say yes to his friend. And Augustus gets to wield this hammer when needed. And maybe because he was the first Roman emperor, or maybe just because he was a smart guy, but he doesn't wield this hammer very obviously and very frequently. We have to get rid of our notion of all kings being bad. But for whatever reason, whether personal or strategic, Augustus was a good emperor in the eyes of history and the eyes of the Roman people. But I don't like him here. Because, well, he didn't write enough down that I can make an effective podcast about this segment. Sarcasm, obviously, but the Praetorian Guard narrative really begins to pick up now. Because the limelight really begins to shine on this so far enigmatic group after the death of Augustus Caesar in 14 AD. Because the Praetorian Guard really starts to get its legs under the next emperor, Tiberius. The Senate convened on September 18th, year 14, to validate Tiberius's position as the princeps, which roughly means the first citizen, and as it had done with Augustus before, extended the powers of that position to him. These proceedings were fully accounted by Tacitus. Tiberius already had the administrative and political powers of the princeps by the time Augustus died, but all he lacked were the titles. Augustus, Pater Patriae, and the civic crown, which, by the way, quickly, was a crown that was made of laurel and oak, and it was sort of in honor of the Augustus having saved the lives of the Roman citizens. Tiberius, however, attempted to play the same role as Augustus, that of the reluctant public servant who wants nothing more than just to serve the state. But he didn't do a very good job acting this way, because this ended up throwing the entire affair into confusion, and rather than being a humble move, he came across instead as derisive. 
rather than seeming to want to serve the state, he really just came off as obstructive. Now that we've gone through the boring stuff, the background information, the albeit important things you need to know for this story, now truly begins the incredible story of the Praetorian Guard. The stories and conspiracies and events that made me pick this subject in the first place. Look, Augustus was the pious emperor, a figure who quelled fears of an all-powerful ruler. And by the time his reign was coming to a close, he was widely revered, and if there had been approval polls back then, based on what we have written about him, he would have been pulling some pretty impressive numbers. But his position, as emperor again, was a new one. He was not voted into office in any way. No one really chose him. So a question now fell onto him that no Roman leader had ever had to make since the days of the bad kings. Succession. What would the next emperor? Would the next emperor be someone Augustus handpicked? Or to be something that is just inherited from one of his sons? There was no law in place. There was no precedent. So Augustus just kind of made up his own precedent. And with that, and connecting us back to the story at hand, no one knows if the Praetorian Guard, which was established by and for Augustus, is going to stay loyal to whoever comes next. But at the moment for Augustus, the Praetorian Guard in their future was the least of his concerns. A string of marriages and remarriages, deaths and adoptions had left him far from his first choice, and was now realistically going to crown Agrippa Posthumus, who at that time was only 13. Agrippa was the last grandson of Augustus, if you could even call him one, but he was just simply too young to immediately assume power, as Augustus continued to get older and older, and therefore closer to death. So in the meantime, waiting for Agrippa Posthumus to get older, Augustus looked for others. Furthermore, Agrippa's actual claim was com coming under increasing amounts of scrutiny, as he really only got there through a string of remarriages and deaths anyway. So Augustus began giving Tiberius the power of the Tribune back in 6 AD. But by the way, this is in no way means he's going to assume power next. Now some years go by, but as we know, in 14 AD, Augustus dies. But Tiberius, who was the favorite to be the heir, does not immediately announce his death. Well, you might be thinking, why not? Wouldn't he want to announce himself as the next ruler of the known world as soon as possible? I know most people would. Well, to that, at least I know I would. Tiberius does this whole sort of wait to announce Augustus' death because he needed to make sure that there weren't any doubts who was going to be the next emperor. And he waits until Agrippa, which, remember, is that weird last grandson, he waits until he's killed. And who kills Agrippa Posthumus? Praetorians. According to Tacitus, a Praetorian tribune guarding Agrippa was given these orders by Tiberius. However, here's the catch. With the pretense that Augustus himself had ordered that the boy be killed as soon as he died. Tiberius is essentially saying, yeah, it came from the boss, man. Sorry, you gotta do it. But Tacitus adds that such an order coming from Augustus was improbable at best. A Praetorian centurion with a direct order from Tiberius was almost 100% originated from no one else but, well, Tiberius. And here is where the true power of the Praetorians begins to slowly show itself. 
While the two consuls for that year swear allegiance to Tiberius first of anybody, and this was probably to make it clear that they had no intentions themselves of grabbing power, the Senate, on the other hand, was less quick to do so. But when the Praetorian prefect, Lucius Strabo, swore his allegiance, the Senate quickly followed suit. Already, in just one reign, the Praetorian Guard's influence is beginning to show, and this time, in the Senate. But this influence is not the end, because it is just the beginning for the Praetorian Guard. Nothing keeps your elite military guard more loyal than money. And Tiberius really paid his Praetorians and further boost all their payments. And what was a few more dollars anyway when it was buying something that was almost invaluable itself? Without the guard, an emperor was plainly put a sitting duck, defeating the whole point of being an emperor at all. So it was a necessary expenditure to say the least. So once the loyalty was bought, Tiberius made sure to get his money's worth. But in getting his money's worth, he forever changed what the Praetorian Guard was. He put his new toy to use, and immediately had the Praetorians follow him wherever he went, including into the Senate. The significance of Tiberius' show of public force by attaching Praetorians wherever he went cannot be understated here. And he also gives them a watchword, or essentially, in layman's terms, an M.O. But this was also important because it sent a message to a mutiny out in other areas of the empire, specifically in Illyricum and Germany. The armies there were in uproar because, specifically in Germany's case, they felt that Tiberius' position as emperor at all was not representative of what the empire actually wanted. And that's the one thing you have to try to understand about being emperor in Rome. It wasn't like a kingship of later Europe where power was absolute and it was based on a hereditary line gifted by God. No, because Rome hated kings. Ever since the seven kings of Rome, at the very start of the city, with the, by the way, the last being accused of rape and being an evil tyrant, anyone who even thought of being a king, or even just eyeing for such a position, was removed from power either by law, the senate, the military, or most often an angry mob. That's what made the death of the Republican Rome so interesting. It was a slow-moving train wreck of legal loopholes, self-given dictatorships for life, and a myriad of other things that slowly eroded the fabric of the Republican system. By the time Augustus came, there was no precedent for such a leader. However, that's why the guy called himself Imperator, and still maintained the Senate's existence even though such a system mirrored the Russian Tsars, where look, 1% of the power rested in the Senate, while 99% rested with the supreme leader, the Tsar, or in this case, the Imperator. There was supposed to be this system where there was some agreement as to who the next emperor, even though, by the way, in hindsight, it's crazy anybody actually thought this would work this way. But whatever craziness people needed to take in to convince themselves that they were not being ruled by a king, well, it was done. So these Germans, in essence, these German legionaries, to be more specific, were upset that the guy they wanted, a guy not so confusingly named Germanicus, was not emperor. The mutinies here threatened the very young reign of Tiberius right out of the gates, and oddly enough, these troops from Germany and Lyricum also demanded equal pay to the Praetorians of all things. But these revolutions were eventually quashed, and it went on to show the danger that Tiberius felt not just at home, but elsewhere in his domain. And yes, it's very safe to say that these rebellions were hand over fist quashed 
by normal legionaries, but also with the Praetorian Guard alike. But even at Augustus' funeral, Tiberius made sure that he had 40, and I mean 40 Praetorians with him. Which, yeah, did irk some people out, but honestly, what it definitely did show, though, was the Praetorians just how truly dependent on them the Emperor was. But it isn't like Tiberius really had a choice, though. Germanicus was extremely popular, and as we can assert from what we just talked about in the mutinies, and, well, his name, the Rhine armies in Germany were huge fans of him, and potential let's just say action, could have been taken to ensure his own ascension to being the emperor of Rome. A string of immensely complex marriages and children and adoptions, just like Agrippa Posthumus, saw Germanicus be Tiberius' adopted son, which then, well, pushed out Tiberius' biological son, Drusus, from the potential line of succession. On top of that, Germanicus married Augustus' granddaughter, which further put him in a popular position for himself to be emperor in the near future. Oh, and by the way, while he was young and eccentric and energetic and a great leader, Tiberius was already well into his 50s, and he was a very brutish old man. So everything was pointing for Germanicus to be Augustus' successor, not Tiberius. But here is Tiberius as the emperor, while Germanicus was not. In essence, where we are now, the Praetorians are the only ones allowed to have weapons within the sacred and eternal city. And while armed, the nine cohorts, or ten, depending on who you believe, of them are spread all over the empire, and collectively don't hold too much of their own power. By the time Rome hits their second emperor, though, the wheels began to really fall off the bus. Because it was under Tiberius that Lucius, alias, Sejanus rose to power. The first character in this story to really throw the whole thing into hyperdrive is, well, Sejanus. Born in 20 BC in Etruria, he was the son of Lucius Strabo. His dad, Strabo, was mentioned earlier in the story because around the year 4 AD, Emperor Augustus had appointed him as one of the Praetorian prefects. From what the history gods let us see today from this otherwise completely unknown time, from all accounts, though, again, not many, Strabo did his job well, and well, even more importantly, without any controversy. Until 14 AD, that is. Because in 14 AD, Strabo got his son, Sejanus, to somehow be appointed as his co-prefect of the Praetorian Guard. How this happens blows my mind, but my own theory is that the guard was so non-consequential that having a guy like Strabo with an illustrious career of nothing but loyalty to Rome, picking his son to be co-prefect, well, that just didn't raise much suspicion. But one year later, Strabo got a career upgrade because he was given the governorship of Egypt, the now late Augustus's crown jewel province and the literal and figurative breadbasket of the Roman Empire. So just one year after getting to be co-Praetorian Prefect, because remember, there were two Praetorian Prefects to spread power, Strabo departs, leaving, well, just Sejanus as the sole Praetorian Prefect. But hey, it's just Sejanus. Nothing will really happen. Or wait, hold up, something definitely does happen. He got to work quickly, and by work, I mean consolidating as much power as he humanly could. In 20 BC, he built a new barracks in Rome that would house, oh, not just the Praetorians in Rome, no, but potentially all the cohorts. 
So having two Praetorian prefects? Well, we're just going to stick with Sejanus. Well, hey, wait, whoa. What about the plans to keep the Praetorians spread across the entire emperor and outside the city in small camps? Nope, well, Sejanus thinks otherwise. Oh, and what about there being just nine cohorts? Well, under Tiberius, Sejanus tries to pump up this rookie number of nine cohorts and tries to make the guard a whole twelve strong. In just a few years, Sejanus had found a way to be the sole commander of some 12,000 troops who were all loyal to him. And yes, they also guarded the imperial palace. But Sejanus was not just going to sit back and lazily command a 12,000-man bodyguard unit. Nope, because he was going to make sure that the guard were now responsible for governing tasks within the city. But all while Sejanus consolidated his power by reorganizing the guard, Tiberius was increasingly paranoid and drained, and thus began to lean on Sejanus for counsel about governance. Look, Tiberius was increasingly wary about even the role of emperor at all, actually. By 23 AD, he began referring to Sejanus as Socius Labrum, or for those that don't speak Latin like myself, he was calling him my partner in my toils. More and more influence over a military force was one part of Sejanus's power, and it was important, but his ever-growing place in the wary emperor's ear was a whole new ballgame altogether. Essentially, Sejanus was de facto growing himself into the role a successor to the throne altogether might find himself in. But here's the snag. He was not in line to be a successor, because that role was actually filled by Tiberius's son, Drusus. Which, yes, Drusus stepped up because Germanicus died in Syria in 19 AD under, let's just say, mysterious circumstances. But nonetheless, Drusus was the true successor. But didn't act like one because, well, Tiberius was increasingly more apt to turn to Sejanus for issues around the empire. And Sejanus and Drusus hated each other. For Sejanus, Drusus was just a useless object standing in his way of total power. Now, for Drusus, in his own words, he was scandalized by the fact that, quote, a stranger was invited to assist in the government while the emperor's son was alive, end quote. The rivalry the two shared even boiled over at a dinner one night, when Drusus full-on punches Sejanus. Yeah, he throws fists. Look, but here's the thing. Being of the equestrian class, yet somehow commanding one of the most illustrious military positions in the empire, was for virtually anybody else in the world an incredible success story. And now, imagine throwing in the fact that this success story, already improbable, also gets to be in the emperor's ear? Look, you can't possibly want more than that. But for most, they wouldn't want anything more, and even if they did, they would view anything more as a literal pipe dream impossible to get. But, well, not Sejanus. Sejanus wanted more, and Drusus stood in his way of more, and Sejanus was going to do something about it. In a story practically out of a new James Bond movie, Sejanus hatches a plan. He goes out and, well, seduces Drusus' wife. He sparks up an affair with her so he can slowly get her to do his bidding, join Team Sejanus, not Team Drusus. Eventually, he gets her to slowly poison Drusus's meals. Over the long course of time, Drusus begins to fall ill, but it appears to be just from natural causes. And in September of 23 AD, Drusus, for all Tiberius knew, died from natural causes.
So one would think, if you kill the emperor's own son and somehow got away with it, that all of that crazy action would mean that you would assume the role as successor, right? But the answer in this case is a resounding no. Sejanus was never the second or the third or even fourth pick. And what boggles my mind even more is that Sejanus knew that. Nonetheless, after Drusus' death, Tiberius was clearly broken. But he began looking at the obvious next in line for his position, and those would be from the sons of the now-dead Germanicus. Remember Germanicus, the one the legions really wanted? Well, as I mentioned, he died from mysterious circumstances in Syria, but he had three sons. One named Nero Caesar, the other named Drusus Caesar, and the third was a small boy named Caligula. And here is where the story really begins to get crazy. So those three boys and their mother, Agrippina the Elder, returned to Rome after Germanicus's death. Agrippina immediately gets into cahoots with some of the senators, and they all started to share a mutual concern over Sejanus's growing power. Remember, this is the early empire. The Senate still feels that they should have some sway over the matters that be. Yet here was some power-grabbing Praetorian prefect, equestrian class born, jumping over all of them? That can't happen. And this is bad for Sejanus. To have the future heirs to the throne's mother and senators all turning against you? Yeah, that's not good. But it doesn't matter how much they hate you, as long as one person backs you. With, by the way, that one person being the emperor. But Agrippina did Sejanus a huge favor. She began to openly accuse the already paranoid Tiberius that he in fact was behind her husband Germanicus's death. And on top of that, Tiberius's mother, who, who let's just say held a fair amount of influence over Tiberius in her own right, felt, and well, rightfully so, that Agrippina the Elder had immense ambitions for power. It was essentially an open secret in Rome that she wanted to be the mother of an emperor, which would make her the, you know, the first woman in Roman society. So, well, what does Sejanus do now? Well, he tries to one-up Agrippina's children by asking Tiberius for the permission to marry into the family. By marrying the widow of the just recently deceased Drusus, that is. Yeah, the same woman who killed him. But Tiberius, in a rare showing of a backbone, denies Sejanus' request and went even so far as warning Sejanus that he was in danger of overstepping his rank. Sejanus, to put it bluntly, was in a pickle. He had bitten off a lot and yet was still able to chew it, but now it looked like he had reached the end of what was in the realm of possibility in terms of giving himself even more power. And look, this is like the third time I've had to say this about Sejanus. He reached the end of the road and was as successful as he was ever going to be. But yet again, Sejanus has other ideas. As I mentioned, Germanicus's wife Agrippina did not like Tiberius, but Tiberius's own mother and Sejanus did not like Agrippina. So knowing these factors and the aforementioned fact that it was all known that Agrippina was itching for more power by way of her sons becoming the emperor, Sejanus began to put ideas into the emperor's head. Look, she was friends with powerful senators. They could be plotting against you. Not just Agrippina, but the entire senate too. And you know how that went for Caesar. And who else is in a better position of legitimacy to alert the emperor of plots against him than his partner in his toils and the commander of his bodyguard? If the Secret Service deems it a threat, the president will deem it one as well. 
And that is exactly what is happening here. Sejanus maybe couldn't marry into the family, but he could try to get Tiberius just paranoid enough that he would leave Rome for his own perceived safety, then in turn be brainwashed through filtered and altered information to get him to do Sejanus' bidding. And in 26 AD, Sejanus finally got Tiberius paranoid enough to leave Rome, falling back to his villa in Campania, then later to the island of Capri. According to the historian Tacitus, Guarded by the Praetorians, Sejanus easily controlled all the information that passed between Tiberius and the capital. So what does Sejanus do now? Well, get the now out-of-the-loop emperor to rubber stamp any and all purges he wanted, duh. And just like that, Sejanus begins a series of purge trials of senators and wealthy equestrians in Rome, removing those capable of opposing his power as well as extending both imperial and his own treasury. Sejanus utilized a network of spies and informers to bring the accused to trial for, with all intents and purposes, false accusations of treason, and would then have them swiftly be executed if they hadn't committed suicide already. Most importantly of all, though, he got Agrippina and all of her kids exiled on the grounds of treason in 30 AD. Then, true to plot, the entire family suspiciously died. Oh, my mistake. All but one died, because the young Caligula survived the purge of his family, probably because, look, he was too young to be a threat, but nonetheless, he ended up going to live with Tiberius. But we will get to this little boy later. In 31 AD, Tiberius, by at this point, was essentially ruling in abstentia, and he had a shared consulship with Sejanus, but look, with Tiberius paranoid and recluse on his villa island, the dual consulship in practice really worked as Sejanus, the still-sitting Praetorian prefect, as the acting emperor. He was feeding Tiberius whatever he wanted him to be fed, and in the same stroke, keeping him in the dark about whatever he wanted. All those years of conniving had made, in practice, Sejanus the most powerful man in the Roman world. According to the historian Dio, quote, Sejanus was so great a person by reason both of his excessive haughtiness and of his vast power, that, to put it briefly, he himself seemed to be the emperor and Tiberius a kind of island recluse, end quote. And on top of all that, Sejanus had essentially murdered all of his rivals. So he served his pseudo-emperorship, eliminated his own enemies, eliminated the potential heirs. Things were going good. But honestly, whether Sejanus actually thought he could literally become emperor is another story in question altogether. Nonetheless, one day, Sejanus was summoned to the senatorial floor by Tiberius and the Senate for them to most likely to bestow upon him officially the tribunate authority, essentially officially rendering him the emperor due to the powers that that position possessed. Sejanus arrived at dawn, and the Senate congratulated him. Then the letter from Tiberius was opened and read aloud. The letter was nothing special, marked with some run-of-the-mill policy points, but it stated, to Sejanus' surprise, that he was to be immediately arrested. The building was then surrounded to prevent escape, and by the end of the day, Sejanus had been strangled to death, thrown under the Gemonian stairs, from whereabouts the Roman crowd that had massed there tore his body to literal pieces. Riots quickly broke out where anyone who had been on Team Sejanus was promptly killed. The Praetorian Guard, who were obviously attached to their now-dead prefect, began looting, 
And within the coming months, Sejanus had been erased from the history books, his statues and landmarks ripped down, his children killed, family killed, the works, you get it. Eventually, those realizing that the gig with Sejanus was up began to give deathbed admissions of all Sejanus had done, including the revelation that Drusus's wife had poisoned her husband to death, which was, by the way, soon corroborated by slaves of the estate. And after learning about this, Tiberius made sure that that woman was promptly killed. And, by the way, that all of her kids were killed too. But according to ancient historians, there was no precedent for the capital punishment of a virgin. So one of her daughters, who was still a virgin, was raped first, with a rope around her neck, then killed. The anti-Sejanus purge was afoot. But look, wait, whoa, whoa, how did this happen? Sejanus was running the show. How did Tiberius, as Dua Lipa sings, do a full 180? Well, thankfully, no one really knows for sure. It's stipulated that while Sejanus was controlling the flow of information to Tiberius, he most certainly was not doing it himself. And something must have slipped through that eventually finally alerted Tiberius enough to act on the fact. What we do know for sure is that before Sejanus got to the Senate that morning, he was quietly stripped of his role as Praetorian Prefect and replaced by essentially the Police and Fire Department Prefect, Navius Macro. And it was Macro's own men of the Police and essentially Fire Department that surrounded the building. The Praetorian Guard had no idea. And for good reason. Because if they did, they would have alerted Sejanus immediately. And just like that, Sejanus was done. And by 37 AD, the recluse emperor Tiberius finally passed, and the young, well, notably too young Caligula became emperor. And yeah, we know, his name was not really Caligula, instead it was a nickname that really only took wings in place of his real name after his death. But for continuity purposes here, we will just refer to him as, well, Caligula. He became emperor with the obvious pressing support of the Praetorian Guard, which was still under Navius Macro. Pressing support, yes, but also on the back of literal action. Macro had befriended Caligula in the last couple years of Tiberius' reign, and had become Caligula's right-hand man before Tiberius had even died, and, well, obviously pushed Caligula to become emperor once the senile old man died, and planned to ride his new friend's coattails as far as he could. By ordering Tiberius to be killed after it was revealed that reports of this death had been premature, Caligula had begun to take power immediately upon hearing that Tiberius had died of natural causes, but he did this without making sure that Tiberius was actually dead, because Tiberius was still alive, and shortly after he was heard calling for food. And in an order to prevent this embarrassing and potentially dangerous situation, should, by the way, Tiberius have reacted angrily to Caligula's hasty ascension to power, Macro ordered the old emperor be smothered under a huge heap of clothes. Yeah, so obviously smothering the emperor so one of your friends can assume power should get you the street cred and promotions you thought you would get, right? No. Caligula now viewed Macro as a threat. And Macro was soon stripped of his power and killed himself a couple years later, in 38 AD. We won't dive too literally into the reign of Caligula, who is a truly fascinating train wreck of a despot, but instead we're going to just stick with the guard here. And look, in short, Caligula in every way sucked. He was bratty, a sociopath, pretty much a real-life Game of Thrones King Joffrey. But Caligula also made sure to insult everyone he could, 
whether it was putting his own horse up for a consulship as a way to tell the Senate how stupid they all were, and also more regrettably, profusely insulting a loyal war hero and tribune of the Praetorian Guard's squeaky voice. The tribune was Cassius Caria. As mentioned, he was a war hero, and was increasingly irked out with the crazy train wreck of an emperor Caligula was turning out to be, and, more importantly, was not too happy about being insulted all the time. So what did he do? Well, obviously, he starts a conspiracy to kill the emperor, and that's exactly what he does. In early 41 AD, with the backing of some senators, some praetorians, and some equestrians, Cassius Caria and some other guardsmen accosted Caligula as he addressed an acting group of young men beneath his palace, and quickly stabbed him to death. And yeah, you kill the emperor, guess what? Chaos ensued. The Praetorian Guard had just blatantly killed the sitting emperor. Oh, and better in terms of poor planning, they had no actual replacement. So the Senate does what the Senate do, and they proclaim the Republic is back. To this, Caria agrees, but Caligula's German guard were pissed off and wanted the assassins dead. And the assassins then, in this, panicked and murdered the rest of Caligula's family, including his daughter, his sister, and his wife, and including smashing one of their heads against a wall as method of execution. The Praetorian Guard realized that any way this situation shakes out, they're out of the job. They are done, and it's been proven that they have no real important need to exist. So what do they do? Well, they burst into the palace and grab the timid uncle of Caligula, a man named Claudius, whisked him back to the Praetorian camp, and, well, obviously proclaimed him the new emperor as pretty much the last way to keep their own existence. Claudius became emperor after procuring the support of the Praetorian Guard, but he had to maintain some order if he was to even make it a week. So, well, he ordered the execution of Caria and the other known conspirators involved in the death of Caligula and tried to make every party as happy as possible. But to ensure maybe his own safety and definitely to quell the Praetorian Guard, Claudius compensated the Guard with a prime bonus worth five years their salary. The guard remained relatively quiet during Claudius's reign. They picked him, he paid them, and everything therefore was quiet. And look, Claudius was not anybody's first choice of emperor, but he surprised many and actually showed himself to be a very competent leader and a very solid administrator. In 43 AD, the guard followed him all the way to Britain, and in Britain, the Praetorian Guard fought alongside the Roman military and got the guerrilla fighting Britons into an open battle at the Battle of the Medway and the River Thames both of which, by the way, were sweeping victories for the Romans. In late 54, however, Claudius succumbed to poison, and no, not at the hands of the Praetorian Guard. Most likely, instead, it was Agrippina. N no, a different Agrippina, who was one of Claudius's ex-wives who sought to make her own son, Nero, become emperor over any other potential heir. In step, the Praetorian Guard then immediately transferred their allegiance to Nero through the influence of the then Praetorian Prefect, Sextus Afranius Burrus, who had exercised a large but albeit beneficial influence over the very young new emperor during the first five or so years of his reign. The Guard, look, through Claudius, finally got through one emperor, well, sort of, without killing him. The issue with Nero, though, is that he's young, and unlike a Sejanus character who was in the ear of the emperor for all the bad reasons, it's usually stipulated that Burrus kept this teen in line and showed him the steps to effective governance. 
Because, let's be real, imagine a 16-year-old ruling the known world when we can't even imagine them driving on the street. You get my drift? I want to make a point, though, that Nero is not the Antichrist that he is sometimes portrayed as in modern history. Was he a bad ruler? Of course he was. Did he play an instrument, though, while Rome burned in front of him? No. He wasn't even in the city when the fire started, and when he did find out about the fire, he set about putting it out and even housed victims who lost their homes in the palace ground. What made him demonized in our modern understanding to the degree that he is, is his treatment of a cult group from the eastern part of the empire known as the Christians. I'm not going to get too much into this, but the reason he is sometimes referred to as essentially the worst ruler ever is due to later Roman, i.e. Christianized Romans by then, picking favorites in the history books. Nonetheless, I'm not giving him too much credit because he was, well, still a pretty bad ruler. And bad rulers oftentimes get killed. And there was a large plot, known as the Piso Conspiracy, that sought to kill the spoiled and bratty young Nero once and for all. The plot was utterly massive, and probably its biggest fault. Because you don't need that many people to kill somebody. And eventually someone got upset with another conspirator and rolled the whole thing over, and the Praetorian prefect, Tigellinius, stamped it out, and, well, guess what? Paid the guards extra to, yeah, stamp it out. But in 69 AD, the new colleague of this prefect, the co-prefect named Sabinus, managed to have the Praetorian guard abandon Nero, in favor of, well, a new contender named Galba. Sabinus had promised the Praetorian Guard 7,500 denarius per man if they went along with this. But the problem remains that the actual guy he claimed that would pay them was never told of such deal. So you can tell that this is going to lead to some conflict down the line. The year of the four emperors brings so much confusion to the table about the Praetorian Guard. So that's where I'm going to table this episode for today and look to start with the Year of the Four Emperors and, well, what the Praetorian Guard did during them on the next episode of the Praetorian Guard. Thank you so much for listening, and make sure to go check out my new series, The History of China, and make sure to social distance, wash your hands, and generally be smart about this so we can get out of the stay-at-home order sooner. Stay safe, stay healthy, and I'll see you next time on Dorm Room History, The Rise and Fall of the Praetorian Guard. (laughs) 